We're gonna start now? Rolling. Teachers and Writers Collaborative presents Everything Goes. I'm Jay Milligan. And I'm Brian Devendorf. And this is Jack Fish, a novel from Soho Press. Hit it. Jack walked out of the sea. They had told him to take it slow, to appear to float in after a long swim. Just sort of drift into shore on your back, they had said, right before the big kiss that oxygenated his blood and the slap on the tush that sent him on his way. Jack tried. He tried to be patient and let the choppy waves push him all the way in, but as soon as he sensed that he could stand with his head above water, he charged through the slosh under the pier and didn't stop until he was in the air from his ankles to his hair. That was as far as Jack got before he had to put out a hand to hold on to one of the pilings for balance. He was brought up short by the force of the currents that were pouring down the beach and into the ocean, the overwhelming wash that tried to push him back out to the dark rhythm and brine. He was first assaulted by the lights. Hundreds of them. Thousands. Flashing ones. Moving ones. Neon. Incandescent. Fluorescent. Dim. Bright. On. Off. Lights that spelled words. Lights that pointed to things and places. Lights that illuminated the immediate for only an instant and thereafter sent their energy to the far corners of the universe at the speed of light. They had warned him not to stare at them, but he was fascinated by the way they looked. Bright. Unfiltered. Honest. They burned with dazzling zigzags that hung like jellyfish. He closed his eyes and he concentrated on the dry wood of the piling, its crisp feel, its sharp outline and solid form. He took the first breath of air through his nose. He choked. Jack fell to the sand, clutching his face and throat, coughing, gagging on the air. It burned. His tongue felt like a stone pulled from a fire. His lungs rebelled in sharp, tight contractions. Jack's diaphragm began to seize, and as he hacked, he brought up a sour mouthful of a celebration dinner from the night before. He allowed his legs to give way, and he fell back into the ocean, plunging his face into the water. Jack lay there with his feet splayed out in the line of high-tide seaweed and styrofoam, the wavelets lapping at his back. He breathed deeply and slowly stopped sputtering. He had to remember his priorities. One, learn to breathe. Two, find Victor Sargasso. Three, kill him. Better take them one at a time, he thought, timing his inhalations and exhalations to the rhythm of the waves. It went okay, got better even. Hey dude, dude, are you all right? A teenaged couple walked hand in hand along the beach, looking for a place to get cozy in the sand. What they found instead was Jack, shivering in his regulation deep blue mankini, sucking air like a Lamaze yogi. Hey yo, floating guy! The boy tried to get Jack's attention. The girl wasn't so sure they should mess with a wheezing man bobbing in a tangle of garbage and seaweed. He looks like Jesus, she whispered. Let's just leave him alone. Jack sensed her discomfort and tried to dispel it. It's cool. Don't worry about me. I'm just learning to breathe. He began to choke on the dry, dry air all over again. I'm okay, really, I'm cool. Let me just... And he plunged his head under the water for relief. When he resurfaced, the young couple was gone. He lay in the water, just breathing. Jack found that he was able to control the ragged flow of air as long as that was the only thing he did with his mind. Speculating on what he would do for the next days or weeks made him go twitchy and his breathing short and shallow, which led right back to the hacking. He reminded himself that he was on track. He was following the standard procedures for an agent, the left prong of the trident of Atlantis, on his first ascent. Make landfall. He'd done that. Find the mermaid diner. That was all he had, so that was all he had to worry about. If he stayed with the breathing, 
The smells and lights would work themselves out. You're listening to Jay Milligan reading from his debut novel, Jack Fish. I'm Brian Devendorf. Full disclosure, I am Jay's editor at Soho Press. And Jay. Brian. Why, uh, why have a guy from Atlantis? You know, this is part of the zeitgeist. You got SpongeBob, the life aquatic. Right, well... Aquaman, Submariner, Sea Guy, and now Jack Fish. There is a lot... I mean, it, it seems like all of a sudden a lot of people find guys and flippers to be funny. But I actually started working on this in, like, 1998 or so, and um, it was because I started noticing on the subway a bunch of really fishy-looking people. And by fishy, I don't mean, uh, you know, dangerous or strange, because, of course, they're on the subway all the time. But what I mean is, like, people who really look like fish. Their eyes were really far apart, and they had big fishy lips, and they looked kind of soggy. And it occurred to me that they were probably from Atlantis. And the reason why I made that conclusion was because... You know, we have aliens and robots and holograms and people from The Simpsons and all that, but it, but no one had really paid attention to these Atlantis people who I started noticing. And so I started thinking about, well, what would it be like to be a guy from Atlantis kind of wandering around New York? Uh, and So he's just another dude from out of town. Exactly. Scratching the webbing between his toes. <laughs> so to speak. But he's not just visiting, he's here in New York on a mission. Right. You know, this... There was this great mixture of kind of noir atmospherics and um, slapstick comedy, you know. It was absolutely fantastic. I'd like to hear you read um, a chase scene that occurs early in the book. Jack is being pursued by the ancient enemies of his people, the Maltese, and Jack is with his first contact on the surface, Dick Global. In the passenger seat of the Dick van, Jack wobbled, swayed from the waist, and gasped. All the saliva in his mouth wicked through his cheeks and was gone. His tongue fused to his palate and stuck there. Grrr, he said. Dick heard him. I hear you. In the back, got a case of Gatorade. Get yourself one. Jack nodded, clambered over the hot transmission hump, and fell with a flat thump. The air around him fooled his muscle memory and inner ears. He was dizzy and nauseous. His head flopped from shoulder to shoulder with every change in the dick band's delta V. Images of the burrow flashed in his eyes. Restaurant Punjabi, rims, lube, shocks, car on sidewalk, pregnant woman screaming, rent me, fat man selling ice cream, no money down, inspection station, mixed nuts, Torah Academy, 99 cents. Jack knew what was wrong with his equilibrium. He had the classic symptoms. They had warned him to expect it. Crabs, he swore. I'm landsick. Landsick? Oh, crap. Dick had forgotten this was likely to happen. He'd seen it before. Dick's got something here for you. Forgot, sorry. Dick extracted a hypodermic loaded with something bright red-orange from the glove box. Jack peered dubiously over the seat. What's that? Oh. Jack considered the chemical stability the shot would deliver, but chose to act stoic and professional. No, I'm going to ride this out. I don't want to get all confused just when I'm getting started. Dick shrugged and carefully stuck the syringe behind his ear. Whatever, it's here if you want it. He steered the dick van back to the appropriate lane. Unable to sit up reliably, Jack rolled around the back of the van until his head bonked into the side of the red plastic igloo cooler. He slid the top open and pulled a dripping bottle from the slush inside. Still on his back, Jack held the plastic nipple between his teeth, pulled, and squeezed a jet of sweet, salty, and sour wet electrolytes at his epiglottis. Startled, he squinted at the label. Fierce melon? What is this? All the bold flavor you can handle, brah. Thwack! 
A gold-tip harpoon punctured the steel skin of the back door of the dick band and with a shudder and a twang embedded itself in the rear of the passenger seat Jack had recently occupied. Jack tumbled to the left as Dick belatedly swerved. What was that? Jack yelled. Dick confirmed his guess with a glance in the mirror. Harpoon! Maltese! After us! Hang on! He gunned the dick band and briefly kept it up as if he thought he could outrun his pursuers. The Maltese gained rapidly, whining turbos forcing cylinders to gulp more air. Hang on back there, Dick shouted. To what? Dick began evasive maneuvers which were indistinguishable from his normal driving habits. Sudden lane changes, abrupt acceleration, erratic swerving. The Maltese changed lanes and came up alongside the dick band. Dick waited for them to match speeds. He kept an eye on the gold tie in the passenger seat of the GNX, who was aiming a harpoon at the dick band's front left tire. Dick revved as if trying to eke every drop of speed from his engine, then stomped on the brake, stopping the dick band cold. A harpoon clattered across the hood and whizzed through a hole in an eight-foot-high promotional bagel. The Maltese roared away. Jack was thrown against the back of the front seats, then hurled off and tumbled around the rear of the van like a baby turtle in the churn as Dick pulled a hard Brooklyn U, cutting across the avenue and headed back towards Coney Island and the sea. Come on back up here and have a seat. Pull the spear out first, though, brah. Jack yanked the heavy shaft and cruel barbed tip through the back of the seat in a burst of crusty foam and placed it carefully against the side of the van. Then he scrambled over the hump and dropped in against the cracked vinyl and unwound springs of the upholstery. He put on a seatbelt to hold him in place while his head lolled around. Peering down with one eye open, Jack noticed he was still clutching the Gatorade. He took another long pull through the sport top, swallowed, and let out a satisfied, ah, before remarking, fierce melon in the dick van. Dick agreed. Fierce melon in the dick van. Then he checked his mirror. The Maltese were a dark smudge behind them. He said, Dick don't know the back of his hand, but Dick knows Brooklyn better than them. He made an illegal right on red into the gray closeness of the side streets. Time had almost completely stopped for Jack. He was watching a dog squat and strain, 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 squat. Okay, that's it. You need to take your medicine. Dick plucked the hypo from behind his ear and spiked it into Jack's thigh. Jack's body hinged closed at the waist, rigid in pain, until Dick slammed the plunger down with the heel of his hand and warm well-being spread outward from Jack's leg, down to his foot, around his groin to his other leg, and up his trunk to his arms, neck, face, and scalp, enveloping him in an orange cloud of sharp confidence and positive energy. Yeah, fierce melon, he pulled a swig. Ah, fierce melon in the dick van, right? Dick smiled at Jack, pulled the empty needle out of his leg and tossed it over his shoulder. You got that right. Fierce melon in the dick pan. Jack laughed. I mean, what the hell is a fierce melon? Not like a gentle melon, a passive melon, some kind of submissive guppy melon. Fierce melon, yeah! Fierce melon, echoed Dick. The first wave of the shot subsided. The second carried Jack up a gentler, longer slope to a place with better perspective. He remembered the Maltese trying to kill him. The Maltese, the ancient enemies of his people. Did we lose them? I think so. Haven't seen them since Avenue P, but who knows? I'm taking the scenic route to the drop. If they turn up again, we head for Jersey. What's in Jersey? My mother. All right. Thanks again, Jay. More from Jack Fish. Um, I'm reading along. I noticed, you know, some of the R-rated passages have become PG. Did you drop the stuff about the buzzing genitals and holding his package? Right. I, I mean, know. I have instructions to, I to keep it PG. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. keeping it PG because it's public 
public station, yeah. Department of Public Ed. Airwaves, right. FCC. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we should point out at some point that the that the uh, the book itself may not be FCC compliant, and there are a number of wardrobe malfunctions and similar. All uh, right. Jay, a lot of your book is set in and around New York and the outer boroughs and right, Jersey. Right. You live in Brooklyn. Yeah. I mean, I've lived in Brooklyn for 10 years, and I feel like maybe now I have my Brooklyn green card, but I don't have Brooklyn citizenship yet. I'll and never I don't know it. if I can ever get it. But, and there's all this stuff that's going on. It's been going on for generations, you know, and like, okay, so I've lived there for 10 years. Big deal. Right. BFD. Is, <laughs> is that, you know, is Brooklyn's attitude yeah. towards that sort of thing. And there's all these people who've been there for a lot less than I have, you know, who kind of adopt Brooklyn nationality, but you know, I don't, I don't right. think you get that. I don't think it comes that easily. I'll, I'll read this, uh, this part about this big um, artist party mm-hmm. that takes place in an abandoned pool in Red Hook. The public pool building had been grand and condescending once, like a library or a post office in the great city as noble service provider tradition. Now it was a graffiti-covered shell throbbing with light and sound, surrounded by a much-breached chain-link fence. Jack could smell the chlorine and the bleach, the sweat and the pot smoke billowing out through the holes in the roof, pouring down the crumbling brick walls, cascading down the shattered flight of shallow concrete steps to dissipate into the murk of the neighborhood. Johnny Belmont led Jack into a semicircular room packed with people. It functioned as an antechamber to the locker rooms, and it had suffered a long decline. The glass was gone from the high skylights, the trophy cases had been looted and stood broken and empty, and the WPA frescoes were water-stained and crumbling, peeling away in chunks that fell to the terrazzo floor. The murals depicted the happy, swimming workers of Depression-era Brooklyn, frolicking in the pools. They were workers who made things, big, true things like boilers and smelters and girders, and ships and tanks and church steeples and bridges, things that required boilers and smelters and girders, as well as huge, rippling muscles on wide, sturdy frames and a strong, brotherly, communal worker spirit to make. The people in the frescoes had imposing physiques, square shoulders, bronze skin, and clear eyes, sharpened with a sense of purpose. They made things that people needed and that would last for centuries. The work they did was for the good of the common man. It was tough and honest, like them. Jack noticed that the people at the party looked nothing like the people in the murals. They were the new workers of Brooklyn. The work they did was casual, freelance, consulting, or independent contracting. They made things like PowerPoint presentations and intranets and solutions to non-existent problems, things that required frustrating computers running shoddy software to make, things that nobody really wanted and had no permanence or truth, things that would soon be obsolete and forgotten. Many were between jobs and seeking inspiration through chemicals and sex and having brunch a lot, even on weekdays. They were pale, thin, fragile, sickly, pasty, dirty, skinny, caffeine-addicted American spirit-smoking vegetarians, and they were ready to party in their own disaffected, weird way. When I was snorkeling in Mexico, I was struck by how city-like a reef is. You know, you're swimming along, you're kind of cruising across open ocean, and all of a sudden you hit, like, the outer wall. It's, it's just dense with life, and all these creatures kind of, like, cohabitating and kind of feeding off each other and, you know, depending on each other, yet competing with each other at the same time. And the whole thing is this really delicate balance. It's actually kind of profound in a way. I mean, not to lay too much on you. 
But you know, if you like walk around, it's the sort of rows of skyscrapers and like these scurrying people and the yeah, yeah. You know, I was trying to think through Jack's eyes and through Jack's head about what it would be like to kind of be wandering around the, you know, the cluttered, dense, vibrant, loud, nutty, Lower East Side. You know, that's his parallel. That's you know, so that's where this comes from. Jack easily dodged the prone homeless guy in the New York City hat, who swung at his legs with a broom as he left the subway. The narrow streets of the Lower East Side were viscous in struggle and trade and rotting garbage. The shabby tenements loomed close on either side. There was activity everywhere, men with hollow eyes loitering in doorways, guys looking for drugs, guys looking for buyers, women leaning out windows calling to people in the street below, guys washing cars and fixing cars and sitting on cars and talking to other guys in cars and driving cars away, entire families sitting on stoops, eating and talking and watching TV, Kids chasing dogs, dogs chasing kids, cats and rats and pigeons adapted wild to the environment. People going in and out of grocery stores and bars and lounges and stores that didn't seem to sell anything in particular but had a lot of business. The neighborhood was like a reef, with apartment buildings serving as the crusty infrastructure and creatures exploiting every available niche. People everywhere filling it with life, making it live. Jack understood it. He could see how interconnected it was, how there was a delicate balance that made it work. If the temperature went up just one degree, there would be chaos and widespread death. Jack moved through the teeming streets, touching nothing. And so you just want to start rapping? There's kind of two things going on here. Um, The first is just that Jack just had to get from place to place. But what occurred to me when I was writing this section of the book was up to this point, he'd basically been getting like beat up in parking lots and generally abused and not unable to do anything. Well, that's part of his charm, I think. He's this endearing, he's a bumbler. You know? Oh, totally, yeah. I, I can identify with that. And I was, I was having a lot of fun with it, and I, you know, and I continued to abuse him right to that end. But right. what, what occurred to me when I was dealing with this section was the, only, like, the thing that he's really good at is swimming. Right. And so to give him this moment where he actually gets to, to use his Atlantean skills and to, to do something well, do the one thing he's, he's good at as he moves from place to place in Brooklyn... He has to, he's trying to get from uh, the north side of Williamsburg up to the Newtown Creek and Greenpoint. So why doesn't he just take the G train? Even in Atlantis, they know it's faster to swim the East River than to take the G train from place to place. So, here we go. Jack dove in. Immediately, the river knew he was there and pulled him down to its sticky bottom in a coil of current. Jack didn't fight it. The river was in constant motion, flowing in every possible direction, and Jack let it carry him towards its destination. Like a salmon fighting his way upstream, he slalomed against the main flow, using the river's twists and eddies to sling himself along. His route wasn't direct, but Jack had a goal, and he would get there. He moved through the river, sliding in graceful curves and diagonals through its turbid geometry. It felt good to be able to move this way again, breaking out of the flat plane of limited movement afforded by the surface. When his way forward was blocked, or he was hemmed in on the sides, Jack danced up or down, spinning, tumbling, spearing through the murk, until he was carried past, around, or through each submarine obstacle. Visibility was so poor, Jack often hit things before he could see what they were. Impenetrably cloudy, with particles of sludge and soot and grime and mud, the river hurled Jack into sunken shopping carts and tree limbs and chemical drums and tangled knots of cable. The blown safes and weighted canvas sacks and cars and boots and guns seemed to be the most crowded near the bank, so Jack wormed his way around a sunken pier to the middle of the river. There he had other problems. 
The deeper water flowed more determinedly downstream towards the sea, and the surface was crowded with traffic. The parade of pleasure boats, NYPD harbor cruisers, Coast Guard vessels, tugs, tankers, ferries, and the circle line all threatened to shred Jack with a propeller or bludgeon him with a rusty metal hull. He veered back towards the Brooklyn shore, preferring the steady but less lethal battering of shopping carts to the risk of sudden death by tugboat. A gang of striped bass eyed him coolly and kept swimming. Jack made sure to stay out of their way. Somewhere along the north side Greenpoint border, Jack surfaced under a partially collapsed dock. He gauged his progress against the four smokestacks of the power plant across the water on Avenue D. Overhead, helicopters whooped through the air. Leviathan Manhattan teemed with traffic and commerce and self-importance, just far enough away to seem remote and glorious and imaginary. Wavelets slapped against the dock's concrete pilings, which the bitter river had eroded, exposing the rusting rebar inside. Jack could see a confluence ahead, where the river swelled and bent. There he would find his way into the Newtown Creek. He let himself sink and resumed his dance upstream. When he felt a warm, oily surge from his right, Jack knew he had arrived. The Newtown Creek poured its saccharine, chemical-laced current into the East River's turmoil, creating a series of whirlpools and standing waves shiny with hydrocarbons and petrochemicals and liquefied garbage. Jack swam against the flow and into the maw of pollution. His eyes burned as he searched for a way up and out, and he nearly sank before he found it. The rotten rungs of a ladder nailed into the creosote-soaked bulkhead that fixed the creek's southern banks in a black wall of tar. Dripping with grimy water, Jack flopped onto a cracked concrete wharf and took shelter behind a van with cinder blocks for wheels. He waited until he had dried off a bit and could breathe with some confidence. Then he removed the ziplock from his wet backpack, took out his clothes, and got dressed. His back to the brick wall of a massive factory, Jack couldn't be seen, except by the guy loading sheet metal onto a flatbed on the queen side of the creek. And he was union, so he didn't care. Right, in this bit, I mean, Jack's, Jack's trying to... He, he's just gotten to uh, kind of a resting place after a, a bit of a chase and, and first coming up, first ascending and all that. And so he's, he's just gotten to his safe house where he can kind of take a moment to learn to breathe a little bit better before some more action hits. He's kind of nervous about what he has to do. And, and at the same time, it's, it's me kind of having some fun with, uh, with Williamsburg and the people who live there, which used to be me and all that. So I'll just, uh, I'll hit it. All right. Jack stood squinting under the streetlights at the corner of Metropolitan and Wythe. The things inside his head felt much too large for the skull that held them. An urban tumbleweed of a plastic grocery bag puffed down the street on light gusts of dry wind and wrapped itself around Jack's ankle. Jack pulled it off and looked at it. I heart New York, just like a shirt. What did that mean? Jack had noticed an I heart Allah sticker on a cab. It had barely registered, but now he wanted one very badly. For what? He could get a car to put it on, one of those big, boxy, 80s caprices he'd seen, favored by car service guys and Hasidic Jews. Jack thought he could live here somewhere in the outer boroughs and drive around in his undershirt, double park in front of delis and smoke Newports. Maybe that could be his mission. Jack began to hack again. People walked around him without paying any attention. Well, that was good. At least he blended in. It was a whole neighborhood of people who looked like they had just washed up from the bottom of the sea. Cool. Okay, so I'm, again, Jay's editor. I'm reading his manuscript, and I get to the end, and there's this whole ritual involving a beverage called the egg cream. And 
When I first got here, I was like, you know, what the hell's an egg cream? There's no egg. There's no cream. What is it? Right, it's pretty pretty regional. Yeah. Don't have egg creams in Ohio, huh? No. No. So the the egg cream, which which I didn't, you know, growing up, I didn't realize how regional it was. And once my family, we were traveling, we were going up to Vermont or somewhere, we stopped at a Friendly's, like in Troy, New York. And my mom ordered an egg cream, and the waitress looked her in the eye and said, did you say fribble? <laughs> well, before you go into the scene, yeah. I see you've brought with you the ingredients to make egg creams. I've honestly never had one. You've never had an egg cream? Never well, had it's one. good. Then it's a good thing that I'm prepared here. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, I'll, I'll take us through the scene and then, you know, to close, we'll have a, we'll enjoy an egg cream. Right. Jack, um, throughout the book, he encounters this group of yo-yo enthusiasts who follow this sort of rabbi figure, Balthazar, who uses the yo-yo to teach profound philosophical and theological lessons. And so at this point in the story, Jack is wandering around Greenpoint and he gets picked up by Balthazar. Get in the car, please, said the boy. What? But before Jack could say car, it rounded the corner and pulled up in front of him. An old black Fleetwood limousine with B-Zar plates. A door creaked open and Jack and the boy climbed in, sliding across the cracked leather bench. Balthazar sat on the opposite seat with his legs crossed beneath him. He was wearing a white robe and red flip-flops and was unwinding the leather straps of a small leather box tied to his forehead. Jack the Ripper, Tire Jack, Jackie O, Wolfman Jack, Jack O'Lantern, Jack Kerouac, Jack Daniels, Jack Nicholson, the Jackson Five, Jackson Pollock, he said. Jackie Jack, would you like an egg cream? Egg, Jack stammered. Cream? Moisha. Balthazar indicated a rack of glasses with the smallest gesture of his hand. Moisha opened a compact refrigerator concealed behind a wood veneer panel and removed a glass bottle of milk. He took two heavy pint glasses from the rack. He held a glass under a jar of Fox's Ubet chocolate syrup and pumped a squirt into it. Dom, Moisha cantillated. Hebrew, explained Balthazar. Blood, it means. Moisha pumped another squirt of chocolate. Svardea, frogs. Knim, lice. Arov, that is uh, like a pack of wild beasts. Dever, pestilence. Shechin, mm, boils, that one is. Barad, hail. Arbe, locust. Choshech, darkness. Moisha pumped the last squirt into the glass and said with finality, Makat Becharot, the slaying of the firstborn. As Moisha poured milk into the glass, Balthazar explained, The ten plagues visited unto Pharaoh until he would allow Moses to lead the slaves across the Red Sea. Oh, said Jack, a little teaching device. It helps the pupil maintain the proper count. Taking a long steel spoon from a drawer, Moisha stirred vigorously with a chopping motion while he blasted the milk with a jet of seltzer. He sprayed and stirred until a light brown mound of foam formed on top of the glass and spilled over the edge. Moisha wiped the glass with a white cloth and handed it to Jack, who politely waited until Moisha had finished preparing Balthazar's egg cream as well. Jack accepted the offer of a straw. Balthazar did not. Jack tried a sip of his egg cream. It was sweet and light. It had a rich, buttery feel to it, with a dry brush of the soda bubbles to finish. Jack looked at Balthazar, who had a brown, foamy mustache, which he wiped away with the back of his hand while exhaling a satisfied, <sighs> Jack sighed in agreement. Good, Balthazar said, addressing Moisha. But next time, remember, long, continuous pumps. I can taste your hesitation. Yes, Rebbe, Moisha said with downcast eyes. Balthazar held his glass aloft, turning it a few degrees back and forth appraisingly. Another paradox in this strange world, eh, Jackfish? A dying art. The egg cream. No egg. No cream and not much real seltzer or you bet to be found anymore. 
or milk for that matter. It'll be difficult for young Moisha to continue the practice, but that only makes it more worthwhile, eh, Moishnik? Moisha looked up from the half-pint junior egg cream he was mixing for himself and nodded. Jack sat back and sipped his egg cream. Mazel tov, Balthazar said, raising his glass. To your success. All right. Make me an egg cream, man. For Teachers and Writers Collaborative, I'm Jay Milligan. This has been Jack Fish from Soho Press. For more about Jack Fish, author readings, MP3s, T-shirts, tote bags, swizzle sticks, bumper stickers, and big foam hats, go to j-milligan.com or sohopress.com. Uh, this is Everything Goes, produced by Erwin Gonchank in the studios of WMYE-FM. All right. Cheers.